Lecture 23, The Conquests of Edward I. Welcome back. Last time we talked about a very turbulent reign. Henry III was not well respected by his barons, uh, and they spent much of the reign trying to get him essentially to rule sensibly. But Henry won out in the end, and the big reason why is that Henry had a very sensible, very formidable son. And everybody in England knew that eventually, if they just hung on, this son was going to succeed his father, and that things were likely to change for the better when he did so. And this son was the Lord Edward, as he was called, Henry's oldest son, the one named after Edward the Confessor. And one reason the barons were split during the baronial revolt into two factions is that some barons are already positioning themselves with the Lord Edward, with his succession in mind, looking towards when he's going to be king. The prospects under Edward look a whole lot better. He seems a lot more king-like. And that makes a big difference in the Middle Ages. For one thing, he actually has a lot of experience governing the country. During the time that Henry III was a captive under the rebel leader, Simon de Montfort, Edward had been the standard bearer for the royal cause, and he was the one who successfully led the royal attack at the Battle of Evesham in 1265 that defeated the rebels once and for all. And after that, for the last seven years of his father's reign, Edward played a very important part in the day-to-day -day affairs of the kingdom. Henry III was getting older, and he was increasingly happy to just leave matters to Edward. For another thing, Edward looked the part of king. He was called Longshanks because of his long arms and legs. This is another way of saying he was very tall. And sometimes you see portraits of Edward with a very long neck, which is a way of trying to emphasize his height. And this was an asset then, just as it can be now. It made Edward seem more formidable. And Edward was also handsome. People thought so at the time. And he seems to have had a kind of personal magnetism that drew people to him. Henry III was not magnetic in this way. Edward was. He attracted talent the way that other successful leaders that we've talked about did. So when his father, Henry III, died in 1272, Edward was very well positioned to take over the throne, which he did as Edward I. Now, even though there had been Edwards before the conquest, they start the numbering all over again with Edward I. But here's the incredible thing about Edward's accession to the English throne. When Henry III died, Edward was not even in England. He was on crusade in the Holy Land with his wife, Eleanor, whom he adored. He and Eleanor went everywhere together. When she died in 1290, the king had 12 elaborate stone crosses built to mark the route of her funeral procession from Lincoln all the way to London. But back to the crusade in 1272. Here's another difference between Edward and his father. Henry had been reluctant to go on crusade, as we saw, but Edward was an actual crusader. The only other crusading king in English history had been Richard the Lionheart, so that's not bad company to be in. And Edward's reputation is so formidable that he doesn't even actually have to come back to England right away once he hears the news that his father is dead. He stays in the Holy Land another two years. 
Now, everyone knows that he's coming back eventually, and they want to be sure that he's not displeased by what they've been up to while he's away. So the English barons behave themselves, and things are pretty quiet all throughout the time that Edward is on crusade. And when he does get back to England, he plunges right into his two big preoccupations, justice and war. Edward has a couple of other nicknames besides Longshanks, and they speak to these twin preoccupations. He's called the Hammer of the Scots because of his campaigns in Scotland, though he's actually more successful in Wales than Scotland, and we'll see that. He's also called the English Justinian because of his efforts to reform the law in England. This is a reference to the great Byzantine emperor of the 6th century who reorganized the legal system of the Roman Empire. Now, Edward doesn't do anything quite as major as Emperor Justinian did, but in his own way, he makes quite an impact on the English legal system. So I'm going to start by talking about Edward, the legal reformer, and then we're going to talk about Edward, the war leader. So first, the courts and statutes, then the wars. Now, like his great ancestor, Henry II, Edward is determined to reform the law. And it's even clearer with Edward than it is with Henry II that what the king wants to do is to centralize legal authority in royal hands. And one way he does this is to pioneer the use of the statute. That is, brand new laws that are written just because there seems to be a need for them at the time. Now, this may not seem like a revolutionary concept, but in the 13th century, it is pretty new. Think back for a second to what we've said so far about law. We started early in the course talking about the legal system that the early Germanic settlers brought with them from the continent when they came to England. That was supposed to be the law of the people, and the king's job is merely to find it, that is to say what everybody thought they already knew about what the law was. That starts to change under King Alfred as the king begins to pick and choose what the laws should be from the choices that he has, some of which conflict with each other. The king is starting to shape the law, but there's still a large element of custom that's driving the whole thing. But Alfred starts a trend, and various kings, both before and after the conquest, came up with law codes, always claiming that these are really ancient laws that they're promulgating. They have the authority of long tradition behind them. Now, King Edward does something fairly new. He makes brand new laws. He isn't pretending that they're old laws. And he uses Parliament to do this. And this is really the effective start of Parliament as a legislative body. Now, the first actual statute really can be traced back to Edward's father's reign, to 1236. This is the Statute of Merton. But it's not a royal initiative. It's a concession that King Henry III has to make to the barons. They are asking for the right to enclose common lands on their estates. And the king grants that, of course, in exchange for taxation. The Statute of Merton is technically the first law in the English statute book. But King Edward's statutes are different from his father's. Edward makes laws that he wants to make. 
And a lot of them have to do with criminal law. For example, in 1275, we have the Statute of Westminster I, the first Statute of Westminster. And among other things, this statute makes culpable homicide a crime subject to execution. Now, this hadn't been the case before, and this is clearly meant as a deterrent. The statute also permitted prosecutions for rape that are brought by non-virgins. Until this point, such cases have no legal standing. If you're not a virgin, you can't be raped technically under the law. Later, rape is made a capital offense. The statute also regulated elections, something that's a new concern. Now you've got parliament up and running. The law calls for elections to be free and fair. Now, this statute was actually written in French, not Latin. French was the day-to-day -day language of the law courts. And the statute proclaimed that it was being written, quote, for the common good and the relief of those who are oppressed. Now, here the king is essentially claiming that his interests are the same as those of the community at large. We all agree. We all want law and order. But it's not going to be a big surprise, I'm sure, that a lot of the statutes that Edward is responsible for have to do with property. There's a very important statute passed in 1290 called Quia Emptores. It's named for the first words of the statute in Latin. Some statutes are in French, some are in Latin. And this statute, Quia Emptores, bans subinfeudation. Now, that's a very long word, but it's fairly easy to explain. Suppose I hold some land of the king. I'm a tenant-in-chief. We talked about this when we talked about William the Conqueror. There's no other lord between me and the king. But then I grant part of my estate to someone else. That person holds their land of me, and I hold it of the king. Instead of two people in the picture, now there are three. What if the person I granted land to grants it to another person? Now that person holds it of my tenant, who holds it of me, and I hold it of the king. Well, this process is called subinfudation, and you can see that it could get ridiculously complicated over time. There are times when people just want to buy and sell property, and they want to be rid of any obligations to the land that they're selling, and this new statute makes that possible. It creates the mechanism for somebody to sell their spot in this feudal chain. They sell it outright, and then they're just done with the whole transaction. It's a much simpler way of buying and selling land, and it makes it a lot easier for the land market to function. And it slowly weakens the importance of feudalism. Landholding becomes merely an economic transaction. It's not a personal relationship anymore. Now, I want to mention just one more statute, because this is one that Edward wants to put in place very clearly for his own benefit. This is the Statute of Mortmain from 1279. Now, the word mortmain means death hand in French. Now, this statute barred the sale or gift of land to the church without the permission of the lord of the estate. And the statute gets its name because of the expression, the hand of the church is dead. Now, what that means is it never dies. The church doesn't die. Once land goes to the church, it never changes hands again. The church doesn't die and need to pass the, the land on to an heir. There's no turnover. 
Now, this is very bad from a standpoint of producing revenue because certain fees are due whenever an estate changes hands. When a lord inherits a property, he has to pay a fee called a relief to the king. It's kind of an inheritance tax. So the kings don't like the thought of land going out of the cycle of being inherited periodically. So this statute is meant to protect a royal revenue stream. So taken as a whole, Edward's statutes are there to help the king, they're there to help the people, and they're there to foster the sense that king and people are helping each other. But Edward doesn't just make statutes. He also centralizes justice, even more than Henry II had done. He wants even more business to be handled in his courts rather than in private courts. Now let me say here a word about private courts. We've already talked about manorial courts. These are the courts that lords would run on their manors. Well, they could also hold courts that dealt with a whole group of estates. Uh, such a group of estates was called an honor. And uh, as we talked about when we discussed the estates at the time of William the Conqueror, that could be spread over a fairly wide territory. But all of these lands together would have a court called the honorial court, the court of the honor. And in this court, lords would settle disputes, perhaps between tenants. Uh, so everything to do with the honor was handled in this private court. Now, if you had a grant of land at the time of the conquest, you usually had a private court that went with it. Many such courts had been meeting in England since the time of the conquest, and supposedly this right was granted with the estates. But Edward wanted to be sure that all of these private courts really were authorized by royal grants. He doesn't want any fly-by-night private courts. So in 1274, he begins investigating the origins of the courts. And he uses a proceeding called quo warranto. It's a question that means, by what warrant? In other words, by what right do you hold your court? Where's your charter saying you're allowed to do this. And this causes consternation among the barons because in many cases they don't have a charter that goes all the way back to William the Conqueror's time. In those days, grants are not always written down. How is a baron in the 13th century supposed to prove his right to hold a court that his ancestors have been holding for over two centuries? Now, there's a wonderful story about this dilemma, and I hope it's at least partly true. The story goes that the Earl of Warren, a very elderly baron, was summoned before the king to defend his right to hold his private court. Where's your warrant or charter? Now, supposedly, in response to this question, the earl took out a rusty old sword and waved it in the air before the king and said, Here, my lords, here is my warrant. My forefathers came over with William the Bastard and conquered the lands with this sword and I will defend them with the same sword against anyone who tries to take them from me. The king did not conquer and subdue this land alone. Our ancestors were his comrades and confederates." Well, whether the king is taking this uh, uh, response from the Earl of Warren into account or not, he does back down a bit, and the result is a statute in 1290 called the Statute of Quo Warranto. And it says that if you can't prove you have a right to hold your court, you have to get the court confirmed by a royal charter. And of course, there is going to be a fee for that. 
But the statute includes a kind of grandfather clause. It takes into account the different standards of record keeping from an earlier age. Very old grants like the Earl of Warren's, they don't need such airtight documentation. And this is a good case of where King Edward gets most of what he wants from his barons. They do have to regularize their courts, but the king makes a very realistic concession and everybody's more or less satisfied. And I think this is a good example how, of how Edward is a much better politician than his father was. And Edward is also a good administrator, or at least he hires good administrators. He formalizes the division of the three most important royal courts. He really streamlines their functioning. And these become known as the three common law courts because they administer the common law that's been growing up since Henry II's reign. And the three courts now have specific areas that they cover, so you know exactly what cases go to what court. And they now have a permanent staff of professional judges. The first of these courts is the Court of King's Bench, and that handles cases that relate in some direct way to the king and his affairs. Then you have the Exchequer Court, and that handles cases involving royal revenues. And finally, the Court of Common Pleas. And that, as the name suggests, handles everything else. That would have been the court that most people would be involved with. And along similar lines, along this organizing and, and streamlining, Edward divided up the royal administration into four independent bodies, and each kept their own records. The first of these is the Exchequer. We've met that before. It supervises the collection of revenues by the sheriffs and other local officials. The chancery is the second of these departments. It's in charge of issuing and preserving royal documents. And the chancery is the home of the Great Seal. The Great Seal is used to authenticate royal documents, and it's kept at Westminster. So the exchequer and the chancery, now they are both staying put. They're not traveling with the king. It's now too cumbersome for them to do that. It's a sign of the growth of royal administration. You can't take it on the road anymore. The third royal body is the council, and that's just what it sounds like. It's the inner circle of the king's advisors. It's a kind of executive department. And finally, you have the fourth royal body, and that is the household, and that handles the day-to-day -day expenses and other matters for the king and his entourage. Now, the council and the household, of course, do need to move around with the king. And so the household has what's called the privy seal. It's a kind of a substitute for the great seal. Now, by means of the privy seal, the household can send a message back to the chancery in Westminster, authorizing it to issue certain documents. Suppose the king, while he's traveling around, decides to do something like make a grant of land. He can send word back, and the grant will be issued. Now, the upshot of all of this is that there is more clarity, there's more regularity in English royal administration than ever before. We're starting to see routines. We are heading towards bureaucracy. Now, so far, this lecture has sounded very peaceful. I've given you the routine stuff first, but the rest of the lecture is all about conflict. Here come the battles that I promised. But before I get to Edward's fights with the Welsh and the Scots, a few words about conflicts with the barons we'll see that the two kinds of baron, uh, conflicts are related to each other because, as we've seen, whenever kings in England want to fight foreign wars, they need money, and when they need money, they often get into arguments with their barons. 
Now, most of the time, Edward is such a successful warrior and such a good politician that he gets his barons to go along with his requests for money. But on a couple of occasions, there were problems. Now, the first of these is the most disturbing. In 1290, Edward needs money for his wars, and he's temporarily out of good expedience, of good things to offer his barons in exchange. So he makes a very sinister bargain. In exchange for taxes, Edward agrees to expel the Jews from England. Now, at first this may sound as if it's coming out of the blue, but the background is that throughout the 13th century, anti-Semitism has been getting much worse in Europe. It was already bad at the time of Richard the Lionheart. We saw then that the Jewish community gets attacked right around the time of Richard's coronation. But the atmosphere is even worse by Edward's reign. And the financial picture is very bad for the Jews. Henry III had repeatedly taxed the Jews. Remember, he's not getting a lot of money out of Parliament, so he needs to get it somewhere. So by 1290, the Jewish community has almost no assets left except for the debts that are owed to them by a lot of the English barons. And so when King Edward uh, banishes the Jews, he's erasing those debts. That's why the barons want the Jews expelled, and they all have to leave. And this is effectively the end of over two centuries of Jewish life in England in the Middle Ages. And there won't be a Jewish community in England again until the 17th century. Now, the second time the king and the parliament go head-to-head -head over money is in 1297. And this time, the barons are resisting paying for a war that the king is fighting. He's fighting it to protect Gascony. And that's the last of the English lands that are left in southwestern France. It's part of the old duchy of Aquitaine. And King Edward persuades them to agree by reissuing and confirming Magna Carta and the Forest Charter. Now, it's a fair question. Why does the king need to reissue Magna Carta? And why would Parliament pay for that? The reason is that along with the reissue, the king is essentially admitting that maybe some of the taxes he's been collecting lately, maybe they fall into the category of what he's not supposed to collect. So reissuing the charters is a way of saying, from now on, I'm going to be good. And in terms of big confrontations between the king and the barons, that's about it. Now, compared to Henry III's reign, that's not a lot of crises. Edward rules 35 years. Most of the time, he and his barons are on the same page. And one reason for this is he's a very successful war leader. And this gives him a credibility that helps him push through all the other reforms of his reign. Now, he's active in three main military spheres, in Wales, in Scotland, and in France. And I'll start with Wales, where he has the most success, and then we'll move on to Scotland and then to France. The conquest of Wales is undoubtedly Edward's most famous military feat, and certainly it lasts the longest. Now, the history of relations between England and Wales are already long and complicated by this point. It goes back to the Germanic settlements. Remember the building of Offa's Dyke in the 8th century, trying to separate England and Wales? But then under the early Norman kings, you see English settlers making inroads into Wales, especially in the south, but they never really conquered the whole place. And whenever the political situation in England was difficult, 
the Welsh tended to take advantage. They'd take some of the lands back. But the Welsh were a divided people. There are many small kingdoms, and they fought with each other as much as they did with the English. And then in the middle of the 13th century, the Welsh finally produced a leader who seemed as if he might be able to unite the Welsh against the English once and for all. And this was the leader of the northern Welsh kingdom of Gwynedd, a man named Tlwethlin. Now, technically, Tlwethlin should have done homage to Edward I for his Welsh lands. This was a concession that English kings had forced on the Welsh in the past. But Tlwethlin felt strong enough to refuse. So in 1277, Edward I attacked him and forced him to submit. In 1282, though, Tlwethlin rebelled again. And this time, Edward responded more savagely. He wanted to crush the Welsh once and for all. And Tlwethlin was killed in battle. And Edward set about the systematic conquest of Wales. And to that end, he built a series of massive castles that used the latest building techniques. And there are a whole series of these castles. Flint, Conwy, Aberystwyth, Rhiddlan, and perhaps most famously, Carnarvon, where his son Edward was born in 1284. And this young prince became the first heir to the throne of England to be named Prince of Wales, which is a tradition that continues in the English royal family to this day. Now, there's a later story, it's apocryphal, alas. There's a later story about the conquest of Wales that Edward I promised the Welsh that he would give them a prince born in Wales who spoke no English. This was supposed to be a concession to the Welsh. Now, it's a trick, because really he's talking about his infant son, Edward, born at Carnarvon, who at the time, of course, spoke no language of any kind. This does say something, I think, about relations between the Welsh and the English. It's a pretty thorough, pretty brutal conquest. Of all of England's attempts to subdue the lands of the Celtic fringe, the efforts against Wales had the most success. Those castles did the trick. Now, to this day, Wales retains a separate cultural identity, but the political integration with England has been quite complete, much more complete than it ever was with Scotland or Ireland. Now, Edward's efforts in Scotland were not nearly as lasting, but at the time they seemed very promising. And I think during his lifetime, Edward thought that he'd be remembered for what he had achieved in Scotland. In Scotland, it was really a case of Edward taking advantage of an opportunity that presented itself. What happened was there was a succession crisis in Scotland. I'm not going to go into all of the details, but through a series of deaths, the heir to the throne of Scotland by the late 1280s is a very young princess named Margaret who had been brought up in Norway. So she's called the Maid of Norway. She was the daughter of the Norwegian king and his Scottish wife. She was the daughter of King Alexander III of Scotland. So the Maid of Norway is actually the granddaughter of the King of Scotland. And by 1286, she's the only legitimate claimant left in the Scottish royal family. Now, King Edward sees a great chance here. He agrees to a marriage between the Maid of Norway and his son, Edward. The Maid of Norway is sent for but she dies on the voyage between Norway and Scotland. And then King Edward claims that since he was the would-be father-in-law of little Margaret, he should have a say in deciding who's going to get the throne now. 
Now, he has a strong legal motive for doing this because he sees this as a good chance to rectify the situation regarding homage that the Scottish kings owe to the English kings. This had been the issue that triggered the Welsh conflict, whether Llywelyn was willing to do homage or not. Over the centuries, some Scottish kings had done homage to English kings, others hadn't. And Edward figures this is a good opportunity to use some leverage and enforce the doing of homage. So in 1291, he takes an expedition up to Scotland just to demonstrate his authority. And in 1292, he convenes a court as feudal overlord to choose between the two most promising candidates for the throne, Robert Bruce and John Balliol. And this episode, where the throne is up for grabs in Scotland, is known in Scottish history as the Great Cause. Now, the court chose Balliol, but the Scots were divided about the choice, and some of Bruce's supporters decided to appeal over Balliol's head to King Edward as feudal overlord. Balliol then defied Edward's attempt to treat Balliol as a vassal. I think this should remind us a little bit of the whole conflict between King John and King Philip of France, only now uh, it's reversed. The English king is the overlord that the troublesome barons are appealing to. John hadn't liked being treated as a vassal. John Balliol in Scotland didn't either. So he goes to war rather than submit to Edward. Now this has pretty much the same disastrous consequences for Balliol and Scotland as defying Philip had for John in Normandy. In 1296, Edward comes north, he ravages southern Scotland, he forces Balliol to abdicate. And then he does something of symbolic significance that opens up a rift between England and Scotland for centuries. Edward removes the Scottish coronation stone, the Stone of Scone, and takes it to Westminster Abbey. This was the symbol of Scottish monarchy. Their kings were crowned on his throne, and now it's taken away. It really had to mean something to Edward uh, for him to take the stone south. The thing weighs about 336 pounds. The idea certainly is to assert that Edward is the overlord of Scotland. Now, the stone stays in Westminster Abbey for the next 700 years, and it's used in English coronation ceremonies. And then, of course, in British coronation ceremonies after England and Scotland are united under one crown. In 1950, though, the stone was kidnapped by four Scottish nationalist students, and they actually took it to Scotland, I think in a VW Beetle. But it was later returned to Westminster. And in 1996, the British government is trying to tamp down dissatisfaction with the constitutional position of Scotland within Great Britain. So they made the gesture of returning the stone to Edinburgh. And the stone will stay there until the next time it's needed for the coronation of a British monarch. But let's get back to King Edward. He's deposed the Scottish king, so he's effectively acting as Scottish king himself. But in 1297, a new player appears on the Scottish scene, a man named William Wallace, and he's the main character in the movie Braveheart. Now, there are a lot of historical inaccuracies in the movie. The filmmakers really just want to tell a good story. But one thing is true. Wallace makes life very difficult for the English in Scotland for nearly a decade. Finally, though, he's captured in 1305 and executed. But Wallace's death does not bring stability to Scotland. And when King Edward dies in 1307, he leaves a lot of unfinished business for his son. And the effort to make Scotland permanently part of the English throne won't succeed for another three centuries. 
Now, there's one last conflict of Edward's reign that I want to mention. This is the conflict over lands in Gascony, in France. They're clinging to these lands because of trade. King Edward gets very valuable customs revenues from the Gascon trade. Now, the English kings still owe homage to the French kings for Gascony, but there are squabbles about what that means in practice. King Philip the Fair is trying to assert his full feudal rights over Gascony. This means Edward would have to obey a summons to the French court. Edward doesn't want to do this any more than his grandfather John had wanted to, so he refuses. Now, we've talked about the fact that uh, Edward wants to get Parliament to pay for this war, but finally in 1297, Edward is able to take the field, and the kings fight inconclusively for the next six years. The reason the war matters, though, is the way it's ended. It's ended by a proposal of marriage between the young Prince Edward and the French princess Isabella. And this marriage is going to have very far-reaching consequences, because it's going to give England a claim to the French throne. Now, next time, we're going to talk about this young prince and princess and about their very complicated relationship.